Hello everyone and welcome to the Volref Feed. This is the show that discusses everything that makes up the world of commercial food service. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the Volrath Company. And as always, we have our co-host and producer, Justin Pearson. Justin, how are you? I'm doing great today, Rich. How about you? Fabulous. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. Fabulous. All right. Yeah, feeling that way. You know, taking a vacation starting tomorrow, so. Uh, Well, yeah, yeah. Got any great plans for that? Just a little getaway. That's it. Nothing, nothing too serious this time of year, but. All right. It's, yeah. it's good to unplug for a little bit and uh, hit that reset button. Exactly. A lot of doing nothing is what this one's going to be about, so I'll take it. <laughs> no honey-do lists or anything no, like that? No, All no, right. No. A lot it's, of it's doing a... nothing. <laughs> unplug. So today, um, you know, I always tell you we have great guests, and I, I truly believe it. We have, we have really interesting people, and we get to learn a lot. And today is going to be another one of those days. I think it's um, going to be a topic that... Once we start talking about it, people might say, well, this I, I understand what's going on here, but I'll bet it is. I bet we're, we're going to have a lot of things that people aren't uh, that familiar with and, and really some eye-opening things. Um, you know, we're going to talk to someone who's involved in chains and in small operations, people can make decisions and, you know, a small group and bang, they make the decision. That's the way it is. But what about when you scale up and you've got more money invested, more risk? All these little details now really begin to matter. Um, you know, someone mentioned, um, it was, it's like if you think about a car, right? We all have our knowledge of cars. We have experience with them. We use them a lot. But do we really understand how they work inside and all the things that go into making the car, the, the decisions that are made on why it's this way or that way, the design issues for everything from function to safety to performance you know there's a lot of things that go into it and i think restaurants are and chains especially are the same way right i think we all know a lot about a chain but do we really know how it works mm-hmm. yeah mean, well you could even say that you know like a, an older vehicle like yeah i can work on that you know i can i can get the parts for it i, I can maintain every aspect of it well with a newer car there's there's no chance you, you need several degrees to be able to understand what's going on with, with the different systems and components. And right. the same thing could be said about about chains. Is Yeah, maybe 40, 50 years ago, yeah, we could have a pretty good understanding what's going on, but like everything else in technology and the advancements, they've become a completely different thing from, from their origins. And it there's, there's so many different facets to it that we just don't have the understanding being casual customers. Right, but I think you you said something there that makes me want to make a point is that when you say we can work on our car, that's like the operator of the one store. But when you're a Ford or GM and you're designing the car, what Mm -hmm. went into the design of the 2.3 million Tauruses they've sold over the last how many years or however many cars it is, that's the things that, those are the types of decisions. So our guest today is a person that does some of that stuff with the menu and food at a chain. Today, our guest is going to be Adam Moore, and uh, he he says his, in his own words, he blurs the lines between a chef, a food stylist, a product developer, a strategist, and all the other areas that go into a new food item. And when you're talking again about chains and a big rollout, a lot of those things matter. A lot of the details. How do you set it up in the kitchen? How, do they have the right equipment? What about things we talk about at Volrath all the time? Portion. 
Right. If, if you know, he's saying, hey, every one of these gets a two ounce scoop of product. And if it's not two ounces, that's a big deal. And and all the way up, not only flavor profile, but certainly cost. Yeah, definitely. And you look at a, a, a single restaurant operation where, eh, you know, maybe two ounces, three ounces, whatever. And, you know, maybe I like this customer, so I give them a little extra more, whatever. <laughs> right. That is no big deal on, on your bottom line. Mm-hmm. But when you multiply that by millions, right. it's huge. And that, yeah, and that's one of the things, like, when I travel, sometimes I, I, I like to go to mom and pops because you get the flavor of the air you're in. But sometimes when you're in a hurry or you just want consistency, you rely on the chains because you think they got that figured out. You think yeah. it's all been set up ahead of time. and So that's one of the things that uh, Larry Deutsch, who is our director of strategic sales at Volrath, who works with chains, talks about all the time in that some of the decisions that you'd think, oh, boy, that that's certainly made at the chain level, and that's consistent across the line, actually isn't. It, it could be a decision that's made at the operator level and then the other way around, like things that you think, boy, that that's made at the operator level. No, that's the thing that's specced at the chain. And it just goes back and forth there. So there's there's a lot to be said about work, you know, doing the work on the front end and getting it right at the chain level and the things they care about, they want to make sure are right. And that's, again, where Adam and his... Uh, his company come in. So he founded a company called Flashpoint Innovations, Flashpoint Innovations, which is an alliance of chefs, mixologists, product developers, strategists, and others that bring new product to the food service world. So that'll be interesting today to hear all those little decisions and hopefully some good stories about how they've done that with operators they've worked with. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what is directly applicable to single operations and that, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of tips and tricks that be that can be taken from chains and implemented on a small level. Mm-hmm. You're right. A lot of the things that a chain operator, excuse me, a mom and pop would look at, they, they might get inspiration from a chain. Just the consistency of wanting to make sure it's done the same way every time, and that those are just all good lessons, right? Yeah. Well, and I'd be willing to bet that there's still things that chains can learn from mom and pop places too. Oh, no doubt. No there's doubt. A lot of a lot of innovation by necessity happening at those mm-hmm. levels that well, could be scaled. Right. And speaking of innovation by necessity, that's another area that Volrath, you know, we do a lot of work. We don't talk about it because in some cases maybe we can't, but we do work with uh, a lot of chains that we make special tools that they request. Right. And right. if you look in the kitchen, you start, you know, you work at the Volrath company or any, I suppose, food service company, you look and you recognize the things that you make for that chain that are specific to what they do. And I always call those workarounds. Like if I walk into a kitchen and I see somebody put a hole in something or bent it a certain way or, you know, cut a piece of it to to fit differently, that to me is a workaround. And that's always an opportunity to look at maybe a new product or if they're doing it that way, maybe there's, there's others that would do it that way. And so that's one of my things I always look at in kitchens are what do they do? You said the necessity kind of drives some of the innovation. So what is it that they do that is unique and would others like it? So let's just get to our guest then, Justin, I think, and uh, hear firsthand how he turned what we believe, I think, into an interest or a passion of his into a business. Once again, for everyone, our guest today is Adam Moore, who is the founder of Flashpoint Innovations. Adam, welcome to the Volrath feed. Thanks for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for, for coming. Uh, Justin and I were in the beginning just kind of talking a little bit back and forth about um, 
you know, what you do, and, and we're kind of speculating a little bit. So if, if you wouldn't mind, just start out and just tell us a little bit about what Flashpoint is and, and what it is you do. Yeah, so my core business is is primarily working with uh, marketing boards and uh, suppliers within the food service industry, and specifically uh, representing them as their corporate chef and uh, working with national chain account customers, not only across um, restaurants, but also in, even into retail spaces, depending on who uh, my client is. And it's really about creating not only the idea, but also connecting them with the right folks along the supply chain to actually bring that idea to life. So it's not just the cool pie in the sky, uh, thought, thoughtful idea that could work for their operation, but also it's about uh, making those connections so they can easily bring it to market. Well, Justin, we weren't too far off. I guess we got a good, a couple of good things in there, but yeah. certainly a lot more. That's 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 amazing. And so, where did this? I'm, I'm assuming at a young age, you you got into culinary, and where did the that, that kind of go and get you to where you are today? Yeah, so I've so I've always kind of had a entrepreneurial mindset, like as a as a kid. Um, I remember um, I got in trouble once. Uh, my uh, it's funny you're taking me back to this story. I was collecting <laughs> rocks in the alley as like, I don't know, I may have been like four, three, four or five years old. Um, and I was collecting rocks and I thought it would be fun to write uh, a bunch of different prices for what I thought those rocks were worth. <laughs> and so I had this price sheet with all of the different prices of rocks and outside on our mailbox, I wrote rocks for sale. <laughs> and before I knew it, I mean, I just went back to doing my thing as a kid in the house. Before I know it, my mom comes to me and she's like, Adam, she's like, what did you put outside? People are knocking on our door for rocks. <laughs> what What are these rocks? And I showed her and she thought it was cute. Um, had, to, had to turn away a couple of people that thought we actually did have piles of rocks for sale, I guess, for their driveway or whatever. <laughs> and... And I remember my grandma came over that day and was like, show me what rocks you have for sale. And she's like, what's your most expensive rock? And I think I had it there for like $2 or something. And she's like, I'll buy all your rocks. So that like kind of instilled, I guess, the uh, entrepreneurial passion as to like, oh, I can turn like basically any idea into uh, something that's profitable. And so that's like, that's like what started that entrepreneurial uh, journey, I guess you could say. And then as I went through college uh, or into high school uh, and then into college, I'd always work. So tying it into restaurants, as I went from high school into college, um, I'd always worked in restaurants. For me, it was always a job. You know, it was never something that I thought that it was going to be a career path. But of course, you know, I, I love the camaraderie. I love uh, being around food. I love being around people. Um, I started out in the front of the house uh, as one of my first jobs, and then I just slowly gravitated to the back of the house. You know, maybe it's like that Anthony Bourdain, like pirate kitchen culture sort of deal that, <laughs> uh, you know, he talked about in Ki Kitchen Confidential. Maybe it was the guys that would, you know, would buy me a six pack of beer before I could legally do it. Like, I, I don't know exactly what, what drew me and kept me back there, but um, I just, I, I fell in love with it from that side, but never went to college with the mentality or the mindset that that's what I was going to do um, for life. So uh, when I went to when I went to Purdue University originally for computer science and was just really into technology and computers, so on and so forth, and just realized that I didn't like sitting in front of a computer in a dark room all day. 
<laughs> it's kind of funny because right now I'm sitting in front of a computer in a dark room. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> we all are these days, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so that turned me into thinking about like, okay, if I don't like this, then what do I love? And that's when I went back to restaurants. And so I, I joined the, I got into the hospitality program at Purdue, which is focused really on uh, large scale management of uh, restaurant and hotel properties. And that was really my only vision at the time was like, I'm either going to be a restaurateur or I'm going to be in hotels. I never thought of one or the other. And um, I, as my internship, I got a job at a local restaurant, which then turned into a partnership. Um, it just so happened that one of the partners was leaving the restaurant group and the other partner was like, hey, do you want to go in on this with me? And so I did, made the investment. And for four years, I was an owner operator as what should have been a you know, a skip for me in my journey into like other restaurants, like if I wanted to go around the country or whatever. But literally, I learned from the school of hard knocks by owning my own business again. And that ties back to that like entrepreneurial mindset is that I, you know, I even if I wasn't ready for it, I was jumping headfirst into it. And at that point, I was doing everything as part of the day to day. So you're, I was, I, we went from 50 to 150 seats in two years, hmm. which is a big jump because you go from not having, you know, recipes are in your head in the back of the house to now having to train people in the back of the house, get down. So I had to learn all of the, the, the support structure that it takes to run a restaurant now that went from 20 employees to almost 50, um, over the course of, you know, any given year. And, um, you know, it taught me a lot. Uh, and I did that for four years and luckily was able to, to sell that and, and move on to Chicago um, once I graduated school as well. So it was kind of like a school hard knocks situation. Um, but also at the same time, I was able to exit without losing a significant amount of money because I know that some like jump into it, uh, you know, with their life savings and it can definitely turn out that way. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I was able to come up to Chicago and start working for restaurant groups here. And then I eventually met someone that was within this consulting space uh, that I was able to then start to see what other aspects there was of the business outside of just restaurant operations. Hmm. So that's what, you know, ultimately led me into uh, going from a consulting based role within food service. Um, I also had interest within the strategic bit as well. And so I started working with a company here, uh, also in Chicago, uh, for a couple of years that was really focused on retail innovation and strategy. So I learned not only from the on-premise food service side, but also off-premise within retail as well. And I got the call from a couple of clients that I used to work with that specifically wanted me to come back, represent them as their corporate chef again, but then to do this with more of a strategic mindset from what I had learned uh, from those other businesses. So that was the impetus to starting Flashpoint Innovation, which now is not only creating the ideas, but we're also grounding them with strategic intent. So when I work with my clients today, it's what is that insight? What's that unlock or what's that trend that we should be playing into either in the moment or long term? to create impactful recipes or activations with our customers um, that will benefit everyone in the long run. Hmm. Well, was it the restaurant that broke you away from that to open up 
new possibilities to getting into consultation because I, I always thought it takes a, a very brave person to, to uh, consider themselves uh, an expert to go into consultation. Yeah, there's a couple things. I mean, one was um, when I was in operations, you know, I, I, I really got tired of, um, you know, initially what was kind of the push to look outside of what else was in the business was I got tired of being an overpaid babysitter. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's ultimately what it came down to. I'm like, there's gotta be more than this. Like I, I, you know, I've, I went to college for this, like this, that that's what kept going on in my mind. So it, it caused me to look outside of the restaurant. And one of the things that I didn't realize when I was in restaurants was that I was always networking. Like I was always like, you know, you're on the floor, you're in the front of the house, you're talking to customers, but you know, some some managers, they go through the motion. But if you if you look at when I look at it in hindsight, I'm like, what I was really doing was I was building relationships with people that came into the restaurants. Yes, they were a customer at first, but then they became friends. And then, you know, some of them I'm still friends with to this day. Um, and, you know, you start to learn more about what they do and some of the businesses that they're in. And so through those connections, I was then connected with um, and also Purdue helps, you know, your college or your university leaning back into that, that helped a lot with some of the connections too. Um, the consultant that I met in Chicago, he would come into, um, he would actually come into Purdue's, uh, I was, I was actually, uh, going through a class at Purdue that was a kitchen, uh, focused class and he would come in and he would say, okay, who's, who's in charge here at the moment? And I would, I'd just be like, oh, it's it's me. Like whether I was in charge or not at the moment, I don't know. But he's like, hey, can I park in the loading dock? I've got to teach this class upstairs. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I, I had no idea if he was going to get towed. But I was like, yeah, sure. Go ahead. You should be fine right there. So um, he would do that. And then like I got to know him and and he was, you know, he would say to me like, oh, I have this. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a chef up in Chicago. Like I have this consulting business. Uh, if you ever want to come check it out, just let me know. And so. Um, so, so I did, um, you know, I, I find that a lot of even folks that I meet today don't follow up, you know, they, you'll, you'll make a connection, whether it's with a chef, whether it's with a product developer, uh, whether it's with someone else that could be a potential, uh, you know, business collaborative partner for you and people just don't follow up. So one, it's like, just follow up. Mm -hmm. Um, and th and that's what I did. I would always follow up. And so I followed up with this guy, learned more about his business in Chicago, but then that kind of went away because I'm, I'm then still going back to my restaurant in Indiana. And then when I came up to Chicago, the only thing that I'm thinking is I'm going to work in a restaurant. I'm not thinking like, oh, I could go work for this guy. Hmm. Um, so I'm still in that restaurant mindset. But then as those other feelings started to set in after a couple of years working in Chicago, um, that's where I started to explore those other bits and not only exploring, uh, you know, asking him more about his business, but also some of those customers that came in, like asking them about other adjacent industries. So things that weren't necessarily just directly tied to the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what I ended up doing was uh, ended up leaving the restaurant gig to just focus on myself for a little bit. Um, and ended up taking a job at this consulting company and ended up being there for six years. Um, timing is everything in life. I might be jumping no. ahead to our quotes at the end, but <laughs> I, I had right. 
like timing is everything in life. And like when I joined this consulting company, one of the other consultants was leaving to go start his own thing. So I picked up all of the clients that he was managing, like right at that moment. Mm. And it was like a trial by fire sort of thing. But I like to think that, you know, the school hard knocks of working in Indiana at my own place, as well as in coming up to Chicago, really helped form me as well as my education helped form me to be a to start to be a consultant. But then I was mentored um, by this business for six years. Um, all the meanwhile, I'm traveling around the country. I'm going to trade shows. Um, I'm doing national account chain presentations. And during all those points, you're meeting people. And then it comes back to that follow-up. You still have to make sure that you're following up with those that you meet on the road. And so what I built was just a very extensive network of not only uh, chain account partners, but also, you know, folks that work for other other manufacturers, marketing boards, suppliers, and and other, you know, advertising within the like folks who work in publications, advertising, so on and so forth. And so just really meeting because our the industry is small when you're in those circles, but mm-hmm. it's very big outside of it. So it's you know what I found is that my network has really been my net worth as I've moved forward and and across my career, not just within this consulting space, but just in general, um, the network has been really powerful. And it's, it's been something that allowed me to have the courage to start my own business because I had folks within that network reach out to me and just say, Hey, like, if you're going to do this, we'll support you. And that means a lot. And Mm -hmm. then, to continue to grow that business, you have to continue to have the connections, the resources, then still have the, you, you do need the knowledge. You, need, you do need that foundation. Like I'm not going at this with a blank slate um, around like, you know, the, the foundations of culinary or the foundations of food um, or understanding how the industry works or with supply chain. Um, all those things, like you have that foundation knowledge, but then you need people to hear about it and to know about it. And those to make a lot of word of mouth recommendations. I mean, all of my business to date so far has been through word of mouth. Hmm. Wow. That's not to say that that'll continue, but you, you see what the power of a network can be for you. Right. I can't help but think how much different your path would be if he had gotten towed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I still would maybe, probably maybe, be at my yeah. restaurant in Indiana. <laughs> Man, who knows that that could be a good thing, right? Could have yeah. turned out anyway, right? Yeah. You you um you you mentioned um when you're talking about uh, trends and so forth, that's mm-hmm. one of the things we talked about as far as the industry goes, and you know smaller operations, how nimble they can be, and when you get into the bigger operations like chains and all the other things that go into it. When you when you make that decision at a chain level to to go on to a trend, that that's a big deal. There's a there's an investment there. How do you help an operator see? The direction that could go and does it have legs is it going to go for a while or how do you how's that a process that you go through with your clients yeah you know first it's it's finding where there's area to play and specifically with a with a uh, chain's core customer is understanding like okay what what trends are impacting just the world from a macro perspective what of those trends are then going to come into our sphere domestically, and then what within those trends apply specifically to that particular customer. 
uh, for that particular operator. And once you start to narrow that down, then you start to have to tell a, a great, there's a couple things. One is you have to be able to tell a great story around uh, whatever idea that you have. So if it's idea that's supported with data like that, and this is where data is so powerful, is that data is just an element to help you tell a better story to get a lot of internal buy-in. So you have supporting data, but then on the other side, you need somebody internally that also is going to be the champion of the idea. As a consultant, it can't just be me coming in saying, this is what I know, and here's the idea that you should do, because you know, let's face it, I'm not there with them every single day and within their four walls. Um, I might, you know, I believe in those brands that I work with, but, you know, I'm not there as a part of their day to day. So it does take an internal champion and I can help them be a steward of that by providing them with the, in, in, the inspiration, the collective data, the insight and the know-how to execute a particular idea. And so that's all I can do. Um, in my role to help encourage and move forth some of those ideas um, for an operator. Okay. Yeah. Are you in a persuasive mode sometimes? Or you just lay it out there or do you try to influence your opera, your client? It depends. Sometimes I fall on the sword a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> it depends on how passionate I am for the yep, idea. Right. I mean, there's absolutely certain things that you do have to really get behind. Um, especially if you think a, a if you feel strongly about someone going in the wrong direction, um, like, you know, for example, like what ideas right now would not be relevant in our current environment and is your client or is their customer thinking blindly about whatever path or are they afraid to let go of some of their ideas that maybe they had going on, like just saying in a COVID world, like, are there ideas that they had going on pre-COVID that they just don't want to let go because they put so much time, effort, and energy behind it mm. that they're just not going to let it go? And they just they want to see how it plays out, which could be very costly to themselves financially or for their for their brand. Um, so that that's where you want to that's where I would you know fall on the sword a little bit more um, with with those clients and customers. Otherwise, it's it's more or less just being a supporting steward and a, a part of their extended team. I'm sure you run into that a lot of, we've always done it this way. Yeah. <laughs> more, more, more that than says you a lot. know. Um, but, but, but lucky, I mean, lucky for me, a lot of the, the clients that I work with today are, are very much on the side of trend forward, uh, as well as innovative thinking and mindsets. And with their products, they, they know that tomorrow's never guaranteed or the same. So it's it's one that I've been fortunate to be able to work with because there isn't a lot of that old school way of thinking of we did this yesterday it worked for us it's going to work for us tomorrow. Yeah, that's one thing that COVID has definitely opened up some some stagnating mentalities. Is like you've got to change to survive. You know, innovate to be able to make it out of necessity. You know, innovate or die. I think I think a wise man Jay Z once said that once. <laughs> when do you suggest that an operator look to get a consultant involved? I mean, when is that? Do you have any advice as to when they, when in the process they're, they're, they should be thinking of that? And then what are the benefits, of course, of getting them involved at the right time versus waiting? You know, what, what can happen if they don't? You know, there's a, a couple things. I mean, one would be 
bring a consultant in if you have a small team and you're looking to to build upon your your current resources. And it could be someone that's a part of your uh, team long term, or it could be short term, depending on what the projects are. You know, that's that's the beauty of a consultant is that it can be an a la carte service um, and use as needed. So in terms of labor overhead, especially in today's climate, and you need to stay as efficient as possible, keep those core menu, those, those core um, team members uh, with you, but, you know, leverage a consultant to come in and provide either. And this is like the other reason to hire a consultant is to have someone that comes in that looks at your business objectively Outside of your four walls, you know, you're, you know, as an operator, typically, you know, they're always feeling constrained by the things going on in their four walls. Um, lean into a consultant to also help you bolster perhaps something that you're trying to push internally. Have a consultant, you know, also go out and research a particular idea that you may have or that you're wanting to push internally, but just can't get everyone behind it. So, you know, again, that's the consultant steward that comes in and helps you with refine those ideas or just uh, bolster the, the, the idea itself um, to show the rest of the team that it's that it's a good one. Um, so so those are a few ways. And then also as a consultant, just to really come in, speaking more to those the, outside those four walls is show that brand or show your brand uh, something that maybe they're not thinking of that's happening domestically, globally, that they should be aware of and and really leaning into. Right. A fresh set of eyes can always see things exactly. sometimes so much easier and clearer than when people are too into it and too much emotion. You've got mm-hmm. legacy brands that have been around for so long, they think that this is what they are, but maybe they're being viewed differently. And a consultant, I'm sure, can help see some of that that maybe they have a harder time seeing and recognizing, right? Yep. Yep. Exactly right. Oh, good, good. What does the for lack of a better phrase, um, talent brokering look like for you? How do you connect uh, operators and, and businesses with with some of the other people in the field that you work with? So if you need to get uh, somebody some food photography or they need to develop a design of a menu or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's where it goes back for me to the power of the network is that, you know, I've been building you know, not just folks that I just willy nilly reach out to online and say, oh, yeah, that that guy does photography. So that's who I'm going to use for this this project. I mean, um, everyone that's within my network, I've gotten to know them. They're trusted. I know their work. And so when it comes to that side of the business and when I get some of these larger requests where it's a three month project, a six month project or, or larger or it's requiring something that's outside of my core skill set. I'm leaning into some of those uh, trusted partners within the network to help scale and help create and execute these larger scale projects um, or executions. And, you know, it's really, in essence, bringing forth those trusted partners within that project to execute what some of the larger agencies that are out there are doing. Um, but I'm able to do it in a way that's very cost effective without the large agency price tag. So um, that's where, you know, that's that's where I would, you know, in terms of the project itself, I can be very agile and nimble in terms of who I bring on. And as soon as the project's done, we're, we all disband and go about doing our, our normal work and and can come back together if, if another project in, requires it. 
just to go back to a, a trend here, mm-hmm. you are working, things were moving along, businesses were you know, growing, and the last however many months we've been in this now, what are some of the things that have you been working with uh, some clients on some trends and some changes? And are they cons- are they continuing on from where you where we kind of left off with um, normal world uh, going out to dinner and so forth in in April? Are they have they changed in the last so many months, or are you still kind of pushing forward with some of those trends? I, I, one I can think of is maybe delivery that was trending beforehand, certainly is yeah. now. Just some of those trends have those changed? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely what I would say the biggest shift that I've seen is that in especially within menu innovation has been away from stunt foods and the use of flavor trends to drive foods. Yeah. Well, you know, like the the Doritos Locos taco or like the double down (laughs) chicken sandwich, you know, KFC, you know, those things that you're like, wow, like that, you know, it's either an awesome collaboration or it's just this wild menu mashup that you just got to try and, <laughs> and you know that's you know that those are the things that you know it's it's also like the the challenge like oh this thing you know it's it's four thousand calories and people look at it and they're like well that's wild like who would do that and you got about every college kid in the nation raising their hand that like <laughs> <laughs> i want me and my buddies to go like pound a couple of these just to uh, say we did it uh-huh um, so, you know, that was really the mentality of like, what is the next thing, whether it's with stunt, what I call like a stunt food, or whether it's a flat on trend flavor driven limited time offering. And that was like the core strategy, I would say for the last couple of years that I've been focused on as a consultant is like, what is that next big thing? And what that's in t- all to drive foot traffic. Now I've seen it switch more into this consumer centric meet where they eat sort of mentality. And it's all been driven by the demand for more off premise family style, whether it's eat at home, eat in your car, um, that sort of dining. And, and we were seeing little you know tidbits of it starting to shift there, um, especially with like Grubhub and, and those types of programs that would um you know deliver at home we were seeing those platforms grow but it it exploded um within this year i mean we put our 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 three year you know we fast forwarded three years overnight basically Mm -hmm. um and what it's led a lot of operators and so now the focus has been how do we meet them where they eat how do we deliver beautiful food that represents our brand well off premise and in terms of the menu development mentality is that I've seen is it's really going back to the basics, perfecting what made them great, as well as like ensuring that whatever experience the customer gets at home is delivered in the best way possible, not just from a food experience perspective, but also a brand experience. And so even outside the food, we're starting to see some things like some really creative things done within packaging, um, within the delivery method itself that um, just leads to a better off-premise experience. And even seeing some brands move into retail to where you can now purchase a sauce or a meal kit um, that is is offered at the grocery store. Like you had mentioned, this whole process has been accelerated three years' time. 
that doesn't come without some major growing pains. What would have been some some of the primary bottlenecks that particularly in getting food to customers? I yeah, I would say the biggest one is um, one uh, when when it all first started, like packaging. Um, there, I mean, you're you're kind of limited with the packaging that you had. You're also in this mentality, like we're going to serve everything that's on our menu to go and not everything travels well to go. And so the biggest struggle has been reducing SKUs as well as some of those favorite, like they could have been a favorite menu item on premise, but off premise, um, it's a different story. And so it's been about that SKU reduction and really looking at it with an objective lens as to how uh, a consumer is going to eat this item uh, once once it leaves your store. You know, there's a potential that a burger or let's 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 pick on French fries a little bit. There's <laughs> there's a potential that and a high potential like right now, like with let's say with French fries, we know that after 10 minutes, even five minutes on premise, that French fries are not going to be as hot and crisp as delicious as they are fresh out of the fryer. So imagine like you're now adding 30 minutes to that time. It goes home. It's in a bag or it's in a styrofoam box or a plastic box or whatever. And they're they're just becoming soggier and soggier over that 20, 30 minutes. The consumer perception for French fries, even even dining or even having those off premise, is that they still need to be hot and crisp. So now you have someone that's disappointed getting French fries. If you're able to shift that perception with, say, French fries and now shift that menu item into something that you know that travels well and you know that can handle the abuse and to say something like poutine where now you've got French fries that are loaded with gravy, they're loaded with cheese. The the guest perception is now not, I'm receiving hot and crisp French fries. It's now, I'm receiving hot, ooey gooey, loaded French fries. Hmm. And so you can Uh still serve the same menu items. You just have to put an objective lens on it now that majority of your customers are now dining off premise. And so the, the biggest struggle is, being t- stuck and too tied to some of those classic menu items that did well for you on premise that may not be serving you well off premise. All right. Well, that's got to be a tough sell though. Cause I'll tell you French fries. <laughs> they I are don't just know. The I will, I will cash in. Thing. <laughs> I'll cash in French fries for poutine any day of the yeah, week though. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Right. I, I mean, I, I love this. I love the idea and I, it totally makes sense to try to do it. But I just think of myself on that phone and that telling that customer we have the poutine and they're like, no, I want French fries. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you're not going to get good French fries when you order delivered French fries. Should, I mean, but, there, there's, yeah. there, there's no surprise there. You, you know, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, yeah. So it's like, would you rather have no. crappy French fries or, you know, pretty good poutine? That, yeah. Well, here's here's the other thing, too, is like, you know, going back to French fries. And, you know, I can talk on French fries a little bit. Idaho Potatoes is a, is a client. and <laughs> Former Idaho native here. So, yeah, all right. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> French fry lover here. So, anyway. <laughs> and, and, and so you can, you know, taking it out, you know, poutine, loaded fries, whatever, taking it out of that vein mm-hmm. is also providing at home reheating instructions. Mm-hmm. So with like, now we've we seen a lot of these, you know, kitchen gadgets like the air fryer um, or even using some, you know, even using your oven or is there like a mic, not for French fries, but is there like microwavable instructions? So now you're like, you're, you're in, this is where we see a lot of like fine dining restaurants, especially in Chicago, mm-hmm. like Alinea, three Michelin stars is now doing Alinea to go here in the city 
But what they do is they provide a lot of specific instruction on how to plate your dinner in the best way possible. And so if you offer, you know, it could be either a shift of mindset or mentality of, of, or expectation for your customer, or you could be giving them the tips and tricks that would lead them to the best possible dining experience off premise. What's the price point look like for the customer then, you know, because now they're expected to put in some of the labor. So that labor cost obviously goes down for the establishment, but then they're getting all these tips. So are they paying for an education? You know, (laughs) (laughs) well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, there's, there's this uh, boredom busting element right now uh, into, you know, our, if you're in a state that's locked down, but, um, you know, at the same time, it is heavily discounted compared to, and when I say discount, I don't mean it's like discounted from quality, but it's heavily discounted from what you would pay dining in an established, an establishment like that. Um, so what you're getting is a slimmed down, very high quality meal at home in an affordable price range for the everyday consumer. Cool. And so even with the instruction, you're still like, hey, I might ate Adelinia this year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whether it was the same three-star uh, meal that you would have had uh, in-house in or not, uh, you still ate there. <laughs> you know, I think that tip there, though, of sending along the instructions, think through what you want the guests to do when they get it. Because you you're, you don't want to cover it in sauce at the restaurant as you would maybe if you're going to send it out. because it's not going to travel and hold. So you want that to take place right before the guest eats the meal. So providing those instructions for home finishing of the product, I think that's that's a great uh, thought process for all, every restaurant to go through. Hmm. Do you have anything mm-hmm. else, other quick like tips like that that you can help other operators with there? Well, you know, outside of the food itself is just really looking at, um, I, I'd like to do an audit of the entire process. So it's, you know, think of the consumer journey that it takes to get that product itself. So like, are they, are they going to your website? Um, if they're going to their website, does your website point to an accurate menu? Um, from there, from that menu, does it then point to a third party website? You know, so you're auditing like every single step of the way that could potentially be a barrier to someone ordering from you. So really like looking at a holistic audit of, of your entire off-premise uh, concept right now, because that's the flavor of the moment is really off premise right now. Um, and, you know, really looking at one, like that consumer journey. The other is what other efficiencies can you make in the back of the house? Like whether that's reducing trap, like, so with reducing travel time, depending on where your restaurants are located, could you take advantage of a virtual or a ghost kitchen, which we're seeing like smaller footprints, within different parts of major uh, metropolitan areas to cut down on overall delivery time. So if you're in an area right now where it takes 20, 30 minutes for your food to get to a potential customer, you could look into some of those options as a way to start to bring down that time. So really looking at overall, like, what is that audit? Where can I then create further efficiencies within the system itself? And then how is your brand showing? How's it, how's your brand showing up in general? Um, are you, are you showing up as like, what I thought was genius was what, uh, Brinker did with taking all the capabilities of Chili's and putting it into their wing concept that only lives virtually. So are there ideas like that, that you can do if, even if you're a smaller regional brand that can take advantage of either where your kitchens are located regionally, 
are there other brands that could take advantage of your kitchen location? So um, uh, Wow Bao, for example, in Chicago is actually paying other kitchens to produce their food. And that gives them that regional, instead of actually hiring a virtual kitchen or building one out, they're actually going into some of these operators and saying, hey, we're going to show you how to create our food. We're going to take care of all the online presence. This is going to bolster your sales, you know, a couple grand a month or whatever. Um, are there opportunities like that to collaborate with operators to, to drive further efficiencies? Right. You, know, you mentioned ghost kitchens and these other kitchens. What about delivery uh, equipment bags? You know, Volrath, we have our yep. standard bags, which are put the product in, close up the bag, insulates it. But we also have heat packs that help extend that delivery range as well. Yeah. I mean, that, those absolutely like uh, any sort of like takeout packaging innovation. It could be hot holding cabinets, too, that are are place. If you have your own delivery fleet, like having your own hot holding cabinets or even insulated bags, leaning into some of those innovations and really applicable products um, right now, such as that you have, like whether it's a heat pack, whether mm -hmm. it's tamper proof packaging, um, insulated packaging, all those things are extremely relevant. And those would be things that I would be having those as an operator. You need to have that dialogue and that constant stream of communication with your vendor partners to just know what's out there. Right. Um, you know, just with you saying that, I had no idea you guys had heat packs and uh, off-premise <laughs> off packs. And I'm like, that's a great idea. Like, the, I mean, those are the types of things that everyone should know about and more people should know about. And if it's not being served to you, you need to be able to ask those questions to your, your supply partners. Right. And I can tell you that on our delivery bags, the ambient where you put them in and just seal them up, you know, the, the high quality bag there does make a difference, but it's when you put the heat pack in that the, the interior space is actually, now the container's even warm. So now when you pass that container to that guest, they're already anticipating hot food, right? The container and everything is warm. So it, there's a lot that goes into to a good quality delivery system with heaters and batteries and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and on, on top of that, you know, finding... So say you do want to stick to some of your core menu items, find out what a part of that off-premise experience is. If, if there is quality issues, find out what's causing that. So if it is packaging, um, is, it, is, is this core menu item, is it something that steams a lot? Mm -hmm. um, is it something that gives off you know, a lot of moisture to where you need something that's more vented or something that is more of a moisture migration within pack? Like those are the types of things that by doing a really detailed audit, you can start to find some of those pieces that you don't necessarily have to take off a menu item or change guest expectation. You just need to make a small change like a to-go pack or the way that it's it's delivered. Are you ever a blind shopper for any of your clients? Like do you ever order anything just to be delivered at home to evaluate the process or how do you how do always, you audit that? Yeah. Always. Yeah. Whenever I do uh, work for uh, any sort of national chain customer, we're either going like where it's applicable, go in store eat like we would like a normal guest, um, see the whole experience, go into the back, like go into the back of the house, into the kitchen, see what their constraints are um, or opportunities where the, those would lie. And then with off-premise, yeah, absolutely. It's like, I'm, I want to see every single customer now that I'm, I'm working with, like how, how am I ordering that? Like one, I want to support those customers. So I'm going to order as much as possible from them right now. The next thing is then understanding that experience and where the opportunities could be. Because as I go into some of those ideation sessions, 
it's thinking about not only what's a cool idea, but knowing that off-premise is so important right now and likely is still going to be important moving forward. What are those, what are those cool ideas that then can be pushed uh, in, in, in a way that shine uh, off-premise? Mm-hmm. When you look at like a mom and pop operation and you have, you know, maybe your, your ladle breaks and you b- pick out a new one and who knows, maybe it's a little bigger, maybe it's a little smaller, no big deal on your bottom dollar. Uh, when it comes to portion control in a chain and that amplifies and, you know, mm-hmm. a quarter of an ounce difference equates to millions of dollars over a certain course of time, how does that get evaluated? Yeah. Yeah. So in, in addition to, I would say in addition to not only creating um, cost efficiencies by controlling portions, you're also um, creating a quality and consistent product. Um, you know, just think if you got a, you know, a, a particular sandwich with an ounce more of a particular sauce on it, for example, uh, one time and then half an ounce or, or an ounce less the next time. I mean, your experience with that particular item is going to be very different. So portion control, um, it, it, it serves a couple purposes. But in terms of, of, of our involvement, you know, typically doing a facility audit uh, is, is the first step and an operations audit and understanding, you know, where can more of those efficiencies be gained uh, and, you know, watching how, you know, how depending on volume, you know, everyone is very accurate when it comes to portion control, when things are slow, but as time, but as when business picks up or you're in the middle of the rush, that's where you start to see a lot of those inefficiencies and, and areas to improve. And so that's where, whether it's pre-portioning, whether it's portion scoops, whether it's uh, items that I would say another area to really look at right now is with, with labor. And if you're looking to, you know, a lot of groups are, are trimming, and cutting back labor right now. And so now you're starting to have to look at not only the execution, but also the preparation. And so when you're looking at uh, labor prep hours, what are ways that you can reduce labor prep hours? And right now I've really been leaning into uh, ready to use, ready to eat, ready to drink type products that start to cut out some of those labor hours Mm. um, or some of those process steps. So, you know, when you look at, when you talk about portioning, what are the steps that, that go like not only just skew rationalization to reduce skews in the back of the house, but how can we start to reduce steps within all the things that we do, not just within the food, but also the steps that I take in a kitchen to make my, you know, as one person, to make me as effective and as useful as possible. Kitchen design, kitchen layout, that's yep. very important to make you yep. efficient. Yep. So you mentioned earlier as well, you you look at equipment and, and being efficient in the equipment and the smaller footprints and more flexible. Uh, what are some of the th- pieces of equipment you're leaning towards now that, that kind of fit that criteria of, of being more efficient, more flexible equipment? Yeah, so looking at uh, like rapid cook ovens, uh, for example, I mean, you look at almost like the the Starbucks model is what I like to call it, is is where you've got the rapid cook ovens, you've got ready to eat uh, products that are quickly heated within those. They don't require ventilation. They take up a small footprint. Um, th- those are one. Um, for more full service back of the house kitchens, looking into more intelligent cooking equipment. So 
You've got ovens that uh, all these combination ovens that um, not only can control time and temperature and humidity, but you know, they're able to monitor it and you're able to pre-program in a way to keep your foods consistent, whether you're re-therming or cooking in the moment. So really looking into uh, those two types of technologies as well as hot holding cabinets. Um, there's some smarter and more segmented uh, holding cabinets on the market that once that food is produced, it's keeping it at a consistent temperature until it's ready to be served. And so there's, there's a few within the, those spaces that, that I look to. Um, won't name any particular brands, but like there's, there's a lot <laughs> that's within just those. Um, and then also there's a lot that's, that's happening within kitchen robotics too. So, um, you know, I still think we're a long ways off from having a full robot within the kitchen, but I definitely think that now that there's more of a, uh, there's more of a lens on it now that there's going to be further advancements in technology that create things that are a lot more practical in the back of the house to, replace a fry cook, a grill cook, or some other uh, repetitive process uh, mm -hmm. over and over. Yeah, we, we've witnessed a couple of machines and robots in the kitchen. And the thing is, they're not as fast on, on a one-off, but they work right. consistently for many, many, many hours. So there's where the efficiencies and gains can, can really add up. Yeah. And I think now, you know, the robots are they're stunt robots. <laughs> right. so, There's a term for you, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so imagining a robot jumping over a you know, burning pit of tires yep. on a motorcycle right now. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's putting eyes on robots in restaurants, but are they practical today? I mean, I, you know, to your point, there's definitely some things that, you know, you're, you don't get with the human touch or human speed or efficiency, but, um, you know, as more eyes and innovators and entrepreneurs are focusing on this space, we're going to see some really cool stuff over the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. well, I think you're starting to see a mentality shift too in our culture. I mean, yeah. in, in places like Japan, they're already like, you know, excited about that and seeing some things, but, yeah. but, but here, you know, especially with, with COVID and, and everything going on there, if you can eliminate one potential issue. And, and what I would say too, is that, you know, when we talk about robotics, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's never, ever going to replace the human touch in hospitality. Right. So that, that guest touch to where we're creating connections uh, with our customers that come in, there's always going to be that human touch. Um, but in the back of the house, the things that the guests don't see, as we start to create more cost efficiencies uh, in the back of the house with some of these pieces, we're going to see more and more of those show up. I mean, I think at one point, some of these combi ovens were what around sixty, seventy thousand dollars for a unit, and now they're half that cost. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're and and you even start to see it even within uh, consumer appliances as well. Um, so as as that technology starts to you know really become more commonplace, it's going to just get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and we're going to see more of that in the back of the house. Same thing goes with with robots. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you, there's a place for them, but there'll never be a substitute for a human looking at that plate and saying, it's the way I want it to look, send it. You exactly. Know, like that's not what a robot's going to do. They're going to prep two cases of lettuce and, and, and do the manual, the repetitive type tasks. They'll be very good at them, but having that uh, go, no go kind of decision, that, that'll never happen, right? Exactly. I, don't I, I won't say never, but I'm <laughs> don't, not seeing don't it. Don't badmouth our robot overloads now, Rich. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got to get on their good side. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, for all my bartender friends, I don't think there's, uh, I mean, there's some cool uh, bartenders that make, you know, robotic bartenders that make your drink. But, you know, I don't think that's going to be one that's that's going to be taking over a, a slew of jobs outside of a cruise ship yeah. anytime soon. I don't no. think a robot knows how to overpour too, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, no. In hospitality, everyone, I think, will agree. It, it's... We go out because we like that interaction. We like that experience, and that'll never. I hope. I hope that never goes away. I hope we don't get numb to yeah. that and are comfortable just opening a, a trap door and our meal pops out. So <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen. I was going to say, Adam, you have uh, a new website coming out, right? Yeah. So you know, really focused on you know going back to those ready to eat, ready to drink, ready to use type solutions, and even looking at. Um, even some of these innovative equipment and packaging options, um, I'm creating a or have created a virtual chef curated resource truly for operators to help them discover new and exciting ready to use products, um, as well as those pieces of equipment and packaging, as well as other inspiration. And the site is thertuhub.com. And so we'll be we'll be launching here by the time this this podcast airs. And we'll continue to grow that just based on uh, what our operator and supplier partners uh, look to do and, and to, to connect with each other um, over the course of the lifespan of this. Very nice. We could all use a little bit more connection now more than ever. And to make it easy like that, it, it looks like it's going to be a very, very valuable resource for, for operators out there. Yeah. I say it all the time. We have great guests. And uh, we once do. again... Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for today. It really was a pleasure. Um, and before we let you go, though, I always like to talk to our guests or get from them a, a quote or something in their lives that's influenced them that you go back to maybe. Um, do you have something like that you'd like to share with our guests today? I mean, for me, the, the quote that always is in uh, that is like a part of my credo is that if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that goes in many different ways. And I think it's um, it's one that you can put into your own interpretive world and into the world of food and whether it's into the world of networking, um, it, it applies almost to everything. So um, it's one that, that I like to live by and it's one that I like to to tell everyone else too. It's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you for that. Again, thank you for, for the day, uh, helping our listeners see some of the things that that are out there in this world of food service that maybe not everyone always thinks of. And it certainly helps to uh, uh, talk to someone like yourself that helps open our eyes, teach us some new uh, uh, terms here, right, Justin? You're, you're yeah. stunt, uh, stunt food, and that, stunt was, food. that was fun to learn. <laughs> but thank you again for everything today. We really appreciate having you on the show and wish you the best. And one more time, the, the website for your, your Flashpoint is? Uh, it's flashpointinnovation.com. And then your website, uh, the, the hub? is thertuhub.com. Super. All right. Thanks again, Adam. Take care. Wish Thanks, you the best. Thanks, Justin and Rich. Really uh, appreciate you. having me on today. Thank you. Well, Justin, once again, huh? What a what a good yeah. guest. Really. That was a great guest. I, I just yeah. felt like I was I was in I was in school there. <laughs> it felt like I was I was listening to a professor's lecture lecture and uh, I was just I was taking notes. You were taking notes and absolutely and really, it was kind of like pulling back a curtain and seeing a little bit more what what goes on on larger scale operations and and the amount of minutia that is that they dive into 
and using data to your benefit, which benefits not just chains, but everybody. You can use information uh, collected uh, about about your customers to not only hear what they're saying, but what their actions are saying as well mm-hmm. to better address their needs, get them the product that they want when they want it so you can maximize your profits as well. Right. I think you hit it on the head. I mean, it was that using the data and and looking at why, right? The constant evaluation of of looking at, well, why did this happen? Why did the sales drop during this time? What what happened? And that listening to your guests, you know, we, he talked about a fresh set of eyes and you know, can you can you as an operator be your own fresh set of eyes? You know, mm-hmm. just look at like what's going on here, take a critical look, evaluate or audit your own processes to step back and look and say, is this the right way to do it? Is this working? And um, I, I liked his, uh, your network is your net worth. Yeah, that was, a, that, that was, that a, was cool. Yeah, that. just using your network. Utilize the the suppliers and the people that come in and uh, pick their brains and, and find out you know what it is and, and continually do that evaluation ongoing. Don't just sit back and say, well, it's this time of year and this is what always happens. Why? Question, right? Bring yeah. it up. Yeah, and I I know that uh, that follow up thing he said as well. Um, as an operator, I think it's very important when you have things on like social media comments and things. Follow up with those people. Mm-hmm. And I know he was saying it in a little bit of a different um, context when he was saying it, but as as I try to help my my mother and her restaurant, that's one of those things I think is important. Just following up with people. Right, right, and just being honest and carrying yourself with a bit of integrity and. And being transparent about that yep. will really go a long way. Listen to your guests. What are they saying? Just good advice, right? All right. Well, another good one in the books. Yes, or sir. Or tape, or what do we say ever in the digital <laughs> world? <laughs> uh, uh, I haven't used tape oh. since, oh, my gosh. <laughs> another one on the disc. I don't I even know. <laughs> Am I saying another dated term? <laughs> you know what? We'll just say, uh, yeah, another one in the books. I like another that. one in the books. Keep it simple. <laughs> All right. So, Justin, any last closing thoughts from you today? Please hit that subscribe button. Let us know what you think about us by giving us a review. Let us know what, how we can improve. Also, we would greatly appreciate it if uh, you would share it with your friends. Let them know that you like what we're doing. Right. And, and in the spirit of what we just mentioned, anybody, if you reach out to us, we will follow up. We'll follow up with you and we'll let you know what we think of your idea, your thought. Reach out to us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And as, as we end always, don't worry about anybody else. Don't worry what they're doing. Just focus on what you do best and no one's going to beat you. Thanks for listening again, everybody. Really appreciate it. Have a great week ahead. Until next time, take care.